Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to celebrate Father's Day, we worship you. We celebrate you always. Not just one day, Lord, every day. Lord, use your word to transform us. Use this empty vessel, this weakling, Lord, for your glory and honor. It's not about the messenger, it is about the message. It's about the one who died at the cross. Blemished lamb, sinless. The one who holds the universe with the power of his word, Jesus Christ. May we glorify him today, even in singing and now in the preaching of God's word. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Open up your Bibles to the book of James. We continue the book of James, verse by verse. I'm going to continue uh, preaching today on the second chapter, verse 14 to 26. I'll give you a minute. God's Word reads, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have work, is dead. But some, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Amen. Good. All right. So I want to start this sermon with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. In his famous sermon, Faith Working by Love, he said this. It's not going to be in the screens. I'll read it as slowly as possible. When faith has anything to do, she walks to the field with love at her side. Two graces are inseparable. Like Mary and Martha, they are sisters and abide in one house. Faith, like Mary, sits at Jesus' feet and hears his word. And then love diligently goes about the house and rejoices to honor the divine Lord. Faith is light, while love is heat. And in every beam of grace from the sun of righteousness, you will find a measure of each. True faith 
in God cannot exist without love to him, nor sincere love without faith. They are united. Like the Siamese twins, and where you meet the one, the other is sure to be present. That is today's message. Keep this in mind, because I'll go back, and you see why I quoted Charles Spurgeon. Genuine faith produces good works. Now here, we, again, we see James, a shepherd, a pastor, concerned with the life of his people. So Jews that were scattered through the foreign lands, Greek, Roman. And now something is happening. And so James addresses this today. James has been prepping us for today's message. One of the most controversial passages in scripture that has been widely debated by many theologians. Even Luther, who was the great reformer, had some issues with this passage. Many pseudo-Christian cults or denominations use this passage to trap believers into thinking that salvation is a result of faith plus works. It may seem at first that James is saying that, but once we get into the passage, we'll find out that James and Paul are not at odds with each other. Our, faith, our statement of faith still is and continues to be found in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Read it with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the outline for today's sermon. Today's title is Faith Without Works is Dead. It is part of the context. Verse 17, 20, and 26 explicitly says that. So that's where I got the title. But I only bring two points today. Number one, James is going to explain to us what dead faith is. What dead faith looks like. A warning to us. Number two. He's going to explain to us living faith from verses 20 to 26. So we're going to see what that looks like, what true faith looks like. Amen? Let's get to point number one, dead faith from verses 14 to 19. James is going to describe for us what dead faith looks like. And this should be very, very concerning for us because there is no greater danger than having to confess or profess Christ and not be in Christ. There's a difference. Matthew 7.22 says, And on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It is one thing to declare Christ, to know Christ, but does he know you? There's a difference. And we're going to see three marks of a dead faith. The first mark of a dead faith is an empty profession of faith. We're going to see that in verse 14. He starts with two questions. What good is it, my brothers? He's talking about believers here. 
If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Well, James asked two rhetorical questions in which we know the answer both times. No. Can that faith save him? Absolutely not. But these two questions are important because they're going to help us understand the rest of the passage. James seems to be dealing with the problem that was arising in the early church. Just as Paul was dealing with the Galatians, with the Judaizers, the Jews that were moralistic and adding deeds and works to faith, James is dealing with a different heresy altogether. He was dealing with people that were professing Christ and relaxed and said, there's no need for works. There's nothing to be done. I am saved. Self-delusion. James seems to be dealing with this heresy, and it was the heresy of professing, professing faith by grace, but that faith in which many confessed did not influence their lives. This was not only an issue in the times of James, that is still an issue today. Many have fallen victim to the heretical teaching of easy believism, which teaches that you have prayed a prayer and said, I believe in Jesus at some, at some point of your life, and you are saved no matter what. It is unfortunate that these types of movements in America and around the world, but here, have given the false hope that it doesn't matter what you do after that profession, you're still saved. Hear me out. We're saved by grace, by faith, Christ alone. I get that. The danger in this type of heresy is that it is a distortion of true salvation. Because it is true that in orthodox soteriology, meaning the doctrine of salvation, which is by grace alone, faith alone in Christ alone, provides a guarantee and a security of your faith. But if that faith has no transformation, it's dead faith, James says. It is impossible that you've tasted true, genuine faith and be left the way you started when you met Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, what? Creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A new life, new works, new deeds, but not based on our righteousness, but the righteousness that is in Christ Jesus, now imputed and transferred upon those who profess genuine faith. This is a heretical teaching that has been propagated throughout our society. Even when I preach to non-believers and I ask them, well, how are you saved? How do you get to heaven? What do they immediately say? Well, I believe in God. I put my faith in Christ. And I try my best. And I know he'll forgive me. Where have they heard this? They've heard it from the church. They've heard it from the church. Modern churches have given a false sense that of what a true, genuine believer is. They call it a carnal Christian. Misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 3. When today's mega churches, you respond to an outer call and it is enough. And if you continue to, in your sinful patterns, you are deemed and labeled a carnal Christian. Beloved, let us preach the gospel. 
Let us not steer people to empty confessions and professions of faith. We preach faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, but we also preach sin no more. I didn't say that. Christ said that. Because those who are predestined, called by their Redeemer, will understand the gravity of their nature. And the amazing beauty of the nature of our God. And by, by doing so, they understand the chasm that lays between them and a holy God. Only one who understands the gospel really, truly understands their need of a Savior. And that's where Christ becomes beautiful. Mark number two. A false compassion and love. We'll see that in verse 15 to 17. James continues to describe for us a dead kind of faith in verses 15 to 17. This time, this time he gives us an example. Or what that faith looks like. He says, if a brother or sister is properly clothed, is not properly clothed, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James illustrates what a death, that faith looks like. An empty profession of faith will always lead to a false compassion and love towards others. The evidence of our faith will always be accompanied by love. And that's exactly what Charles Spurgeon said. That's why I started with his quote. People with an empty confession of Christ would do almost everything, if not all, with a selfish ambition. An empty faith, a dead faith, withdraws love from the equation. James uses a simple illustration, a brother or sister, and I love that he uses a brother and a sister, someone intimate to him or her, not an outsider, someone within the flock, a family member. And this member is in need of material things, clothing, food, bare necessities. James doesn't dive in into why the brother or sister was in need. He didn't specify whether the brother or sister were bad at their finances. Maybe they mismanaged their income. Maybe they were in debt. Maybe they misused their credit cards. Maybe. That's not his concern. His concern is the response of the brother or sister that had the resources. Look at the heart. Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. In other words, my family and I will be praying for you. May the Lord provide for you. Beloved, empty faith is always selfish to our own desires. And of course, this was just an illustration. It goes beyond the material or the physical needs. It's about also the spiritual needs. I've seen it many times before. Maybe you're a leader at a church. Maybe, maybe you're a pastor. And some of your members need spiritual counsel. And you withhold grace and love because they no longer serve a purpose. Maybe. 
so-called pastors and self-appointed apostles that use people for their own pleasures and needs, but once they don't, they don't have a use for you, they forsake you, and even at times have you excommunicated from the church. seen it too many times before. Self-ambition, James says. He continues to say, without giving them the thing needed for the body, what good is that? What good is empty talk if you cannot help others? If you are not willing to sacrifice your time and your resources for others, what good is that? It is a matter of priorities. An empty profession of faith will always be seeking one's self-interest instead of the best interest of others. James calls this in verse 17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If love is not in the equation, in the profession, is, your faith is dead. I don't want to sound moralistic today. I don't. I'm just getting it from the passage. Who get to grace? But we need to get this clear. This is the third mark. A shallow or superficial faith. Now this is going to hit home. Read with me verses 18 and verse 19. But someone will still say to you, he will still argue with James, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James makes a further appeal to three, to those who would dare to be argumentative to his teaching. He is describing a supposed brother who had an intellectual faith, intellectual faith, but not saving faith. This brother has a systematic theology, proper doctrine, and chooses to argue about his supposed salvation. James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. This is clearly a brother or sister that has the, all the fundamental knowledge of Christianity. It is a person that clearly goes to Sunday school, possibly has gone through some seminary or theological college. This person believes in faith alone, but has used this beautiful grace out of context for his or his own self-assurance. This is not merely a person who one day came up in front of an altar, an altar call and just called it a day. No, this is not type of person. This person seems to have shown some signs of life in them. This person took the time to learn the gospel and all the doctrines that come with it. This is a sympathizer. This is someone that declares and understands the great revelation of God with their mind but has shown no fruit throughout their walk. This is a reformed mind without a reformed heart. This is the worst kind of a dead faith because that person is self-deceived more than everyone else. James depicts a delusional believer. Someone that sits Sunday after Sunday, loves to listen to the sermons, sings the worship songs, goes to conferences. They have their favorite theologian, 
but the fruits of the Spirit are not present. James expands on this and he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. You're a great theologian. Awesome, you got it right. Even the demons believe and shudder. The best theologians are the devil and his demons. You don't believe me? See it throughout the scriptures. Who knows more scripture? You or the devil? He does. They are no better theologians, than, again, than, than the demons. They know the Bible inside out. They know God's character. They understand the spiritual things. They comprehend the majesty and glory of our Lord. Let me give you an example. Luke 4. Remember when the man in the synagogue was possessed by demons? They saw Jesus. What did the Spirit said? Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. They know. They tremble. But it's not merely enough to have an intellectual faith in Christ. I mean, demons possess an intellectual faith in Christ. They know who He is. But they're still disobedient to that intellectual knowledge. Even Herod, in Mark, in Mark 6, 6, we see that he, has a, he acknowledges the teachings of, of John the Baptist. He knows that all that John is preaching is correct, but ends up killing John. What good faith is that? James says, at best, that's demon faith. And that is worthless faith. And he continues to say, faith without good work is dead. So those are the three marks of a dead faith. Let us get to the living faith. Because this is the one that I want us to hear this morning. Point number two, living faith. Verses 20 to 26. From verses 20 to 26, James switches gears. He describes for us what a, first what a dead faith looks like. Now he will go on to showing us what living faith ought to look like. Now this is a man deeply concerned with the genuineness of faith amongst his sheep. James uses two accounts or two persons or characters in scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, to illustrate living faith. He uses Abraham and Rahab. The harlot. Let's take a look at Abraham real quick. Now comes James' rebuttal to that person who was argumentative. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Here it goes. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his work. And that scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and he was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And this particular verse is where it gets crazy. Many pseudo-Christian cults will use this passage to justify their teachings that faith plus works saves you. But we're going to get into it. To understand living faith, we need to break it down what James means in this passage. At first, it looks like we have a contradiction in the passage. Let's look at verse 21. 
Was Abraham our father not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac in the altar? Let's stop there. Wait a minute, James. Wasn't Abraham justified by faith in Genesis 15? Why are you now going to Genesis 22? Paul said it, Romans 4, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and he was counted, counted to him as righteousness. What are we saying here, James? Paul's argument fits perfectly with Genesis 15. When the Lord appears to Abraham and tells him that Ishmael would not be the child of promise, but a future son who had not yet born would have been the child of promise. Take a look. Genesis 15. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall now be your heir. Talking about Ishmael. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heavens and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offsprings be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteous. What is James talking about? He just said that he was counted righteous when at the altar presented Isaac. James, you're a Jewish man. You know the Torah inside out. What's going on here? Abraham believed and was justified. How do we solve this, what, what seems a contradiction? Paul and James are answering two different questions. James is answering the question, how are you justified before God? James is, an, is answering the question, how are we justified before men? How do we see the uh, uh, byproduct of your faith? Interesting, the word in Greek justified, dekaio, has two different meanings. Number one, it says to render righteous, righteous or such he ought to be. Number two, to show, to exhibit, to give evidence to one's righteousness. James is not using the first definition of the word justified. He's using the second. He's concerned that genuine faith produces works. James clearly uses the second definition of the word. Therefore, Abraham showed before man that he was righteous in Genesis 22. It was the completion of his faith. This is when man was able to see that he was justified. It affirmed his faith. In verse 20, he says this. He answers the question, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is dead? Well, I'll show you. Abraham was justified before man in Genesis 22. What faith? That's living faith. Let's take a look at Rahab. Here's the second illustration. The harlot. The prostitute, Rahab. James, to further prove his point, he says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out of by another way? 
For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Again, James seems to be pointing out that the works of Rahab justified her. But Joshua 2 tells us a different story. Look what she says. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She declared and professed God prior to hiding the spies. There was she justified. But before men, she was justified when she actually completed her faith. Hebrews 11 says this about Rahab. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had a friendly welcome to the spies. By faith was she justified. Not works. But her faith was completely manifested before man when she, had, she hid the spies. This is precisely what James says. One cannot have faith in God and not have Good fruits. Here's my conclusion. It's going to be a little, take a little bit. Just bear with me. Because I want to give an application now. How do these two illustrations apply to us? James again finishes the passage with a repetitive theme. And concern of, uh, the concern of his heart. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead. So also faith apart from works is dead. He uses two completely different characters to illustrate what genuine faith looks like. In the one hand, we have Abraham, the father of faith, the patriarch of the Jews. One of the most revered heroes of the faith. In the other hand, James uses Rahab the harlot, the prostitute, the destitute, the worthless, the dirty. The woman who sold her body for money. James teaches, he goes as far to teach a moralistic message. That's not what he's talking about. He's giving us a message of grace and faith. Although Abraham is considered the father of faith, we know he was far from perfect. At times, his faith was weak and not to be found. He lacked faith when he slept with Hagar and did not believe God in his promise. He doubted God on his promises when he told Sarah to say she was his sister. But the Lord says that even when he doubted, he was counted as his friend. Even there, even then before placing Isaac in the altar, he told Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Abraham was counted righteous because he believed in the promise that one day God would provide for his generation a lamb spotless and sinless that would die for the redemption of many so that any who placed the same faith on that lamb Christ Jesus will be justified also and not only before men but most importantly before God the same God who provides grace a gift of faith will not leave you just as you were. What of Rahab? She is the perfect example of who we were before we came to Christ. 
Dead in our trespasses. Spiritually dead. Faithless. Dirty. Like a corpse stiff without any righteous fruits. But once we heard the voice of our shepherd, we were supernaturally, supernaturally brought from death to life. Through the living word of God, we were regenerated, made into a new creation. And by faith, we were made children of God. And now, producing good works. We've talked today of good works, but not really dived into what those good works are. James illustrates something similar between Abraham and Rahab. Living faith produces works of obedience to God. No matter the cost, these two stories dealt with life and death. Abraham was to sacrifice his own child. Rahab put her life at risk and that of her family because of the faith in her was so evident that God became her priority. And that's the hard matter. Where, are, where is our priority? The main object of worship and adoration ought to be Him. Everything we are, how we spend our money, our time, That's true faith. The type of works that James is talking about is not superficial. It's not simply coming to church on Sundays, being part of a Bible study, being part of the worship team. It's not simply preaching from the pulpit. Although all these things take their place and are a part of good of works, it goes beyond that. It is a complete forsaken of all the things, all the things that you owe, that you own, that you are in obedience to God, to please Him. Jesus said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. But Darren, this is impossible to fulfill. Of course it is. And that is the point. James is not making it at all about a moralistic religion. James is pointing us to Christ. The one who fulfilled all righteousness perfectly for us. If only we were to place our faith in him, all righteousness is now imputed and transferred to us. All his works, all his life. James is comparing what dead faith Looks like versus living faith. But at the end, beloved, we are going to conclude that faith is a work of Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. All who place their faith in Christ will produce good works. It is God's gift for us. This is why his burden is light and his joke is easy. He's the one who produces genuine faith which justifies us before God. And that faith will produce good works that justify us before men to fulfill the gospel. That's the reason we have good works. It's not to make us look good, it's not to exalt self, 
It's not to praise ourselves. Not that we look better in front of man. It's to fulfill the Great Commission. Therefore, exalting and worshiping our Lord. If we cannot, genuine faith cannot even fulfill simple commandments. What does it say of our faith? Today's message is not just to pound on you a moralistic view. It's to search the heart. I don't know who, who's hearing this. I, I don't. I'm not God. I don't see the spirit. I don't see the spiritual things. He does. We ought to search our hearts, see where we stand. May we profess a genuine faith in Christ. May we not self-deceive ourselves with intellectual knowledge. Because at the end, it's that faith. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we preach your word. Lord, I've, I've rushed through this passage. Should a better, might have even been better to preach it in two or three sermons. But I pray and I trust, Lord, that you, you use it for your glory, for your honor. Lord, it's not a moralistic sermon, I hope. I, I pray that you use it with grace. That although it seems like works are our justification, Lord, it's not. It's by grace and faith in you alone. Lord, use it just to, as a means of searching our hearts, edifying your church, convicting of sin, if there's any. Lord, we trust in your power. It's always been about you, your power, Lord, predestining your people, working through your people. And as we heard in Sunday school, you withhold all things. After your creation, Lord, you still withhold, you hold the whole universe in your hands, even our hearts. So I pray, Lord, that you continue being in our hearts in Cornerstone Bible Church. And may we put our faith in you. And may you prove our faith genuine, Lord. So we are accounted as righteous when we are in front of you one day, Lord. This we pray. Amen.